This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Concerts, they're truly one of the joys of summer in Canada. You meet up with friends, you go to a stadium, maybe a festival, maybe an amphitheater down by the water and for a few hours you get to forget about the world and join together with perfect strangers enjoying the bliss of live music hello i'm brian Lilly, and this is the full comment podcast uh, the music industry has definitely changed over the last several years decades even before we get to our next guest who knows so much about this and more i want to remind you i want to ask you i want to beg you even to hit that subscribe button and make sure you don't miss a single episode of Full Comment, where, yes, we talk about the way weighty issues of the world, but we also talk about those issues that give joy and meaning to life. So whatever app or device you're listening on, please hit subscribe. My first major concert was a stadium show. I saw David Bowie at Toronto's Exhibition Stadium with the opening act of Duran Duran. The pre-opening act was a little-known Canadian act at the time called the Northern Pikes. It was a great show, and my floor seats, just 30 rows back from the stage, cost me a grand total of $35 when I was just 15 years old. Adjusted for inflation, that would amount to about $80 today. The concert industry today isn't so much about giving fans a taste of the music as it is about giving the artist the good life, a good income. As Milhouse once said to Bart Simpson, you've changed, man. It used to be about the music. I'm sure that's a sentiment sentiment that our next guest can relate to. Eric Alper is a music publicist. He's also the host of That Eric Alper Show on Sirius XM and probably the biggest music fan I've ever encountered. Eric, thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me, Brian. Great to see you. Good to see you again. Now, um, would you agree with me? Dur- Duran, Duran Duran and Bowie and, and Northern Pikes. How many how, how many layers of the ozone layer do you think would destroy that very night uh, thanks to that show in the audience? Due to the hairspray? Yeah. <laughs> Peter Frampton uh, played for Bowie. Yeah. He, he, was, yeah. he was the guitarist on that tour. David, David Bowie literally saved Peter Frampton from oblivion when uh, after Frampton sold a gazillion albums of Frampton Comes Alive, his next album stiffed with only selling 4 million copies in America and nobody wanted to work with him until... You know, he was kind of lounging around doing a whole lot of nothing, really. And David Bowie plucked him out of doing nothing because he was such a big fan of Humble Pie, the band that Frampton was in before going solo. So here's David Bowie taking somebody that he's long admired and turning him into another superstar for the next couple of decades. And when I tell people that I that was the lineup, they always look at me like, what? Duran Duran and David Duran Duran was the opening act. Yeah, they were kind of on the way down, I guess you could say. They were in a lull at that point. They'd been huge in the early 80s. And then by 87, it was, ooh, do I want to be seen with Duran Duran? So it, it, it was an interesting and eclectic concert, to say the least. But yeah, that was the, the Glass Spider tour, right? Was that the something Gla- like Glass that? Spider yeah. tour? Anyway. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, well, let me ask you, what was your 
first big concert? Not not like, you know, down at the the local community hall or whatever. What was your first big concert that you went to? The first concert I saw was on December the 6th, 1981, and it was on Maple Leaf Gardens, and it was Genesis, who was and still is my favorite band at the time. I went with my sister. Mm-hmm. I got an immense contact high because you can smoke inside the building at the time. No idea what was happening to me. Um, But ever since then, I think I have been chasing that psychological high whenever I see concerts. It's not necessarily that I'm the one sitting in the back with my arms folded going, this is as great as Genesis back in 81. Um, But that, that night was astonishing to me. Not only did I get to see the bodies right i got to see the band live which is still why people spend thousands of dollars on tickets it's psychological it's all of that stuff but they want to see the body in front of them um and also just i don't think i've ever witnessed that many people all in the same place at the time when i was you know 11 or 12 years old so that was that was wild to me and then ever since then uh you know i think for about 10 15 years i think i might have seen at least a concert a week i was you know all the way down at maple leaf gardens it was kingswood music theater at canada's wonderland um ontario place it was i mean i remember one summer I think I must have saw maybe 20 or 30 concerts one summer just by Ontario Place in the c and Grant End alone because it was cheap. It was like $4, $3 for a show. Yeah, I, in, in my younger years, I, I went to more concerts than I can remember now. And people say, well, have you seen that band? And I have to sit there and say, I think so. <laughs> especially especially when you consider the festivals and you'd see 15 acts in a day but but th- but that's okay because those artists don't really remember that tour very much either <laughs> well, before we get into talking about how this industry has changed and, and all of that another question on on your musical experience so you said you've been chasing that high from seeing genesis in 1981 and and, and i don't think you mean the contact high but um uh, What's your favorite concert? Is there one or two that stand out for you the most? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I've seen so many concerts. I've never really walked out of a show, whether it's a club show or whether it's a major concert, and be disappointed. Because whenever I get bored or whenever it's somebody that I've seen a lot of time, I love to just people watch, knowing that there are people and fans that have saved up a lot of money to go and see this. Maybe they've traveled from out of town. Maybe it's their first concert ever. Maybe it's the first time that they're seeing this band. And that's what I love. That's what I still love about this industry and why I love working 17 hours a day, seven days a week. It's that experience of sharing music and talking about it, um, whether it's in person or online. Um, the, the experience of watching other people love what is so wonderful about music in the first place. But I have to say, though, I didn't really get Ed Sheeran. I understood where he was coming from. I get the popularity. I see his chart numbers. I have the albums. I've listened to it. My wife and daughter are massive fans. I finally got to see him a couple of weeks ago here in Toronto, and I walked out of there completely blindsided about how brilliant he was as a musician. Um, 
He showed off his foot pedals. He had a couple of, of amazing special guests and people that I wasn't expecting. So I'm going to say Ed Sheeran recently was at the top of my list whenever people say, who do I need to see? And it's like, it's a, you got to go see Ed Sheeran. It, three and a half hours, three hours of just nonstop hits of so many different musical styles because that's what he's built his career on. Uh, those concerts, and I, I wished I'd gone to see Ed Sheeran, actually. I tried to get in to see him at History, which for people that don't know was a, a small club in Toronto. The guy played a, a club show for what... What, yeah. what do they hold? On like the 1,500, 2,000 people maybe? And yeah. uh, and then played Rogers Centre, pretty much sold out for two nights. And But but those tickets at places like Rogers Centre, where I also saw David Bowie later uh, with um, the dancer from La 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 Human Steps, just him and her on stage, um, you know, they, they used to be affordable. We thought they were ridiculous when I was spending $35 in 1987 to see Bowie. As I said, you adjust that for inflation, it's 80 bucks now. You can't find a, a show for that ticket price. So how can kids today afford that? I, I was working a minimum wage job at a supermarket the summer I, I went to see Bowie. How can kids today afford to go see a show when their favorite act costs hundreds or in the case of uh, one young lady that we'll talk about in a minute taylor swift thousands of dollars a ticket how how can people afford this is it sustainable yeah i i think it's interesting when people talk about inflation because you know uh, i always keep seeing that somebody that had a regular full-time job could afford a home and having two kids and a car and that was the way of life and now it's just simply not. Um, and concert tickets were always set, even then, by the artist. Just the artist had no idea of the sheer demand of how much they could actually get for their tickets. Even though that they understood the scalping market was there, they just didn't care about it because they knew that they were going to walk out of there with $70,000 in their pocket at the time in the 70s and 80s, where you figure, you know, maybe 10,000 people, $7 a, uh, a head, you get to $70,000, you pay off the venue and so forth. And you're walking out of there with maybe 50000 That was really good money considering if you were selling 10,000 tickets, you were probably also selling 50,000 copies in that city or this country in album sales that were $27.99 for a vinyl record or a CD at $20. So there was always something to fall back on of I'm not going to rely only on one aspect of the industry for my money. There are so many other ways I can do it. I can sell t-shirts, I can sell hats, I can tell people to join the fan club and so forth. Now, unless you're at the one-tenth of one percent of the top of the triangle, the top of the pyramid, you're a superstar artist like Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber or The Weeknd or Ariana Grande, um, you're taking home or Elton John or a many classic rock artists like Kansas and Styx and, and Kiss and Journey and Foreigner who are all on tour making hundreds of millions of dollars. In fact, Elton John ended off his tour with $910 million of grosses selling oh, wow. just over eight and a half million tickets sold. So you take a look at that and you think, wow, that's pretty amazing. But Elton John is not nearly making nearly as much money as he was when he was selling albums because really except for taylor swift nobody's really selling a lot of records nobody's selling a lot of physical product and spotify and 
uh, for the most part, are, you know, are still stuck at the 0.0004 cents per stream. So every million streams that you get on Spotify, you're making about $4,000. That goes to Fourth all the rights hold holders. $4,000. $4,000 for a and million? And that's split up by the record. Yeah. And that's split up by the record label, the publisher, the other musician, the producer, the engineer, the studio. All of those people need to get paid. And then the musician and the songwriters are last. So, um, Okay, so, you know, so, so so let's pause here. So it, then you, it, you take a look at it and you're like, you have to make money on the road. So is this why and how the industry has changed so much because of the way we consume music now? I I, I forget what my uh, music streaming plan is. It's like you know, twelve yeah. ninety nine a month or something, and I can listen to whatever, and then that money is split up by what I listen to and what everybody else listens to. But it, yeah. it, you're saying that whether it's Spotify or, or Google or um, uh, iTunes, uh, Apple Music now, I guess, uh, that it's, it, it's about that same, same level yeah. of payment? Yeah, give or take about $500 or so between that million <laughs> streams, right? So when you're, when you're Drake or The Weeknd and you have a number of songs over $1 billion, that's pretty good. That's $4 million. Um, worth of revenue that you get to kind of share when you're Taylor Swift and you have 11 songs over a billion dollars. That's pretty good. Um, but again, that's the 1%. We're not talking most. There was a statistic that I saw. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of 96% of all songs on Spotify have less than a hundred streams because after you go and beg your family and your friends to listen to your music, most people don't have a publicist. Most people don't have a manager or a record label or a marketing plan or Canadian music grant to help you promote. So most people are making essentially for one hundredth of a penny because that's what they deserve to get because that's where that's how many people are listening to you. So yeah, the music industry always divided the money based on the format that we were all listening to in the 1990s when music consumerism was really at its peak. Not only did you have cassettes still selling, you had maybe CDs on year seven. So every record store was fully stocked to the, floor to the ceiling with CDs at 27, 28, 29, $30. Um, and that generation of late eighties, early nineties can music fans were not only buying Nirvana and Michael Jackson and grunge music and Britney Spears and, and Zink and Backstreet Boys. They were also buying Pink Floyd and the who and Janis Joplin and the doors albums that they didn't really spend any more money re-releasing that was all purely profit to the music industry. The average ticket was around eight to ten dollars. The Eagles broke through with the hundred dollar ticket a couple of years later, which shocked everybody. Mm -hmm. But that was the Eagles. They they wanted to have the most money possible and they quickly realized that on the secondary market they were not getting a penny. That's where it really starts with the rebirth of Ticketmaster, of Live Nation, of AEG, working on behalf of the artist to try to get as much money as possible from the live show. I uh, I sold concert tickets for the first time recently because I couldn't go. Mm. And uh, that never happens. And, and so was, I, I had to learn about this secondary market and to sell my tickets because now they're digital. Now they're on your phone to sell the tickets I had to use the secondary market. I had to go through Ticketmaster. 
Well, right. they not only charged me a sale fee, they charged the person buying the tickets from me forty nine ninety five per ticket to buy. Yeah, they set a minimum price. It's just I, you know, had to cancel a couple of hours uh, before the show, so I thought, well, let's sell them cheap and quick. Nope, you're not allowed. They set right. a minimum price above the face value of the tickets. Yep. That's their way of stopping bots. Um, it's interesting. People that want the government to do something about the secondary market are usually the first ones to realize that if you do that, they'll realize that most consumers want the protection to be able to do what they want with their ticket. Why should concert tickets be the only thing on the planet that you are not allowed to resell? Um, those prices of those fees of Ticketmaster, they go to the venue, they go back to the artist, they go back to the promoter, and about 10 to 15% of that ticket fee actually goes to Ticketmaster for allowing you to have the platform to resell it in the first place. Make no mistake, Ticketmaster is a wonderful system that deals with almost 600 million tickets a year that they sell. They get about three and a half billion visits to their website. And I'm not a Ticketmaster apologist whatsoever or Live Nation. I get the frustration. Believe me, I don't get free ticket to anything. So I pay for it. And a lot of times I'm shut out too. But Ticketmaster is nothing more than a platform that the artist dictates to Live Nation or AEG, the promoter that's bringing them to that to the city and Ticketmaster using their their platform to sell the artists are dictating everything they get to decide hey i want to have bots allowed in i don't want to have bots allowed in i want to allow reselling and you know that's why a lot of these artists that are that are kind of giving permission even when you resell it on the secondary market the artist is still getting money from that well, at least the artist is getting money because for a long time that wasn't the case. But that wasn't the case. But yeah, at the same time, Ticketmaster is um, something that people have been complaining about for years. Sure. Um, I, I think it was for Bruce Springsteen in the eighties. They brought out the wristband to try and stop yeah. scalpers from buying all the tickets, and that became a thing. You know, we're dating ourselves, Eric, because we no, we no, remember no. No, lining but, up at actual sales outlets to, to get tickets. But 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 you know what? Who because uh, I worked at a Ticketmaster outlet. You know what happened when people did that? They The scalpers started making deals with Ticketmaster box office staffers in order to pull 40 to 50 tickets even before they opened up the doors at 8 o'clock in the morning. So scalping was always available. Now the artist gets a say in how many tickets they're allowed to to have on the reselling market. Um, you know, And the competition... There's more competition to sell tickets than ever before. There's SeatGeek. There's so there's you know Ticketmaster is the biggest by far. They're almost averaging about sixty five to seventy percent of the North American market for major venues. But there's still a lot of heavy duty competition out there. In case if the artist doesn't want to go through Ticketmaster, um, it's just that Ticketmaster is so good at limiting their profit. And ensuring that they're not overpaying for the artists and doing things fair so that the artist wins, the consumer wins, and Ticketmaster gets a little bit of their cut. Believe me, they're still making money, but they're only making money because concerts are back with a vengeance where, you know, right now, in terms of the halfway point of 2023, 
Concert tickets are almost up about 35% in North America. And in most cases around the world, that number is pretty stable. So there's more tickets being sold to more events and more artists are out on tour, mostly because they haven't had a chance to go out on tour in over three years due to COVID and the isolation period. I um, yeah, I started going to concerts as soon as I could. So I guess the summer of 2021, and yeah. we were on an up and down ride. But I can tell you that the the venues that I go to are much more packed. Is that part of what is driving the ticket prices higher or is it this dynamic pricing model that we're hearing about now that's annoying a lot of fans, generating outrage from politicians? Uh, first off, t- tell me about the dynamic uh, yeah. pricing model. How, so, how does that so work much in there. Yeah. So dynamic pricing is the ability for the artist to dictate to the promoter, whether it's Live Nation or AEG, to allow X amount of tickets to be sold using dynamic pricing. And what that is, is that those are tickets that fluctuate based on the demand specifically for that seat. Live Nation and AEG and the artists and Ticketmaster have a wealth of data at their disposal. They take a look at the last tour and how many tickets were sold. They took a look at the secondary market to see how much tickets were sold in terms of scalping and how many dates um, that artist is going to be playing, how far apart. And they kind of come up with a number to say, we can have three tiers of $500 and $200 and $100 seats, and we'll sell this amount at this amount, and you'll walk home. If we wipe everything clean and you sell out, you'll walk away with $22 million for these dates. Um, dynamic pricing allows the artist to say, well, let's take these hundred tickets and fluctuate them based on the demand, on the demand specifically for those seats instead of having somebody perhaps resell it on the secondary market. But what's interesting is that we see this all the time with just as much anger. If you try to buy an airline ticket going to New York <laughs> three hours before your flight, you're going to be paying a lot more than when you did six months ago. I went to go buy a bag of lettuce not even two days ago, and it was eight ninety nine. Three weeks ago, it was three ninety nine. Tomorrow, it could be seven ninety nine for all I know. So we're used to this dynamic pricing and don't even think twice about it except for, wow, things are going up. So dynamic pricing has come to the music industry and that aspect of it. Um, but, you know, that's just a way. But the again, the artist has every right to say, I don't want dynamic pricing. I don't want to have reselling ability. Um, but it kind of impedes based on their profits and losses, too, if they don't do that. So is it the artist trying to get more money? Is it people coming back from COVID? Is it a combination of the two? Uh, These ticket prices that are $500 uh, for Beyonce recently in Toronto, or, you know, you mentioned the Eagles, their ticket prices ain't still ain't cheap. Um, Taylor Swift, we'll, we'll get to her again in a moment, but uh, what is it that's driving it? Is it all these things coming together uh, combined with inflation? Pretty much. It's it, it really everything. It, it's the lack of, of other revenue sources that the artist has. I mean, certainly it's much better in some ways than it was back in the 70s and 80s when it was incredibly uncool to sell out, to sell your song to advertisers or put them in movies or, or films. Um, certainly having um, TV and, and movie streaming services allows artists to put more and more potential of their music on these 14 or 15 different platforms where they all need music. So there's, there's one aspect of it. Um, the other aspect of it is that I think the artists are getting really smart 
and and woke up all one day and said, how come the the secondary market can sell my tickets for $4,000 for a pair of tickets when I put them on sale for $100? How come I'm not getting a piece of that? That that scalper did nothing to help get that profit. I did. Um, and it's also based on on demand. It's based on on the cost of transportation and staffing. Inflation has certainly made the price of gas go up. So the cost of travel, when you're somebody like Taylor Swift or Ed Sheeran, you might be bringing anywhere between 250 people and 800 people with you in your entourage to just set up that show. That's everybody from the roadies to the lighting, to the catering and, and, and on and on. The venues also have a very, very big stake in all of this to sell out. Um, they not only get a percentage of the profits of those tickets um but you know when you're some you when you're a place like the rogers center in toronto um you know you have to have staff you have to have catering you have to have people selling the beer and the alcohol and parking and security and all of that stuff and those things are much more expensive per hour to put out than maybe 10 years ago so everything is much more expensive but you're right concert tickets are a little bit more but it's just because the artist wants more money all right uh and there's and there's nothing wrong with that like let me well we're you know, like away I, from I, billy I, you know, we're a long way from billy bragg saying uh, threatening his record label that he would uh name his next lp eight pound 99 if they try to put the price too high uh tom petty battled his record label mca back in the late 1970s when his first album was such a success they wanted to raise his next album's price retail by one dollar and it was a hard promises album and he didn't want a 9.99 price point at retail he wanted it to be 8.98 he actually physically declared bankruptcy so that his record label couldn't sue him in order for him to be forced to put out his music the way that he wanted to. Um, the album came out eventually. It was 898. But yeah, you know, it, it, the artist certainly has much more power because they know that they don't really. I mean, look, when you're Taylor Swift, I, absolutely, you need the record label and the management. But for most artists these days, they could just post on Instagram and reach people 10 times better than they can having a record label distributor do it for you. We'll talk about Taylor Swift when we come back in a moment and a tweet from a certain well-known politician in Canada and ask, I'll ask Eric Alper, do we have a problem with not enough stadium space in Canada? Is that why she's not coming? Talk about that when we come back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. She's the biggest superstar in the world once upon a time. Maybe Justin Trudeau could have said about that, said that about himself in the political world. His stars faded. Taylor Swift continues to rise. So the fact that he tweeted at the global superstar recently and her decision not to announce any Canadian tour dates caught some people by surprise. He got some praise. He got some slagging for it, but he just simply said, it's me. Hi, I know places in Canada that would love to have you. So don't make it another cruel summer. We hope to see you soon. 
the fact that Justin Trudeau and before him, conservative MP Matt Genereux, have tried to get Taylor Swift to come to Canada hasn't really helped. She has announced a world tour that includes dates across North America, across South America, across Europe. She's playing three sold-out nights in Edinburgh, Scotland, in a country that has less people than the Toronto area alone. So why? Why isn't she coming here when Canadian uh, markets can attract some of the other biggest names in the world? Is she just too big for Canada? Eric, what do you think? Um, I think it's a number of reasons. Um, the fact that we simply are a massive country in terms of land mass with not a lot of people is reason number one. The entire population of Canada fits into the tri-state area of New York, New Jersey, and Boston, and it's still lower than the population of California. So when you're looking at a map of Canada and you're looking at the size of the venues, um, it's a very easy decision sometimes, fan getting mad tough. It's very easy to say, I can spend this amount of money to play Vancouver, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, and maybe Halifax. Bring in all these people, spend all this time, spend all this time traveling when I can play another six shows in Los Angeles and make double the money and not have to worry about a, perhaps a 35% loss in revenue because of the exchange rate. I have to now worry about getting people passports. I have to worry about visas. I have to make sure that everybody on my team can actually enter the country. And, you know, more importantly, um, she is getting pulled by every single country in the free world in order to visit. It's not like that she's never come here. She came here five years ago. People have to just calm down a little <laughs> bit and realize that, you know, she is eventually going to hit Canada. Maybe my guess is going to be fall or winter 2024. She's playing on average 11 to 15 months in advance for these dates, which is astonishing. Growing up, you would never... It it would be it would be so egotistical for an artist in July to think I'm still gonna be just as popular next November in order to sell out fifty thousand seats. But these are what artists are doing now, which is incredibly wild to me. Um so it's a lot of things. It's the dollar, it's the size, it's the venues, um, and it's the fact that I don't know. Maybe she's just mad that secretly she kind of bid on the Ottawa Senators and didn't get that either. <laughs> she's probably the only celebrity we didn't hear wanted to bet, right. bid on the Ottawa Senators. Uh, right. you, you look at the the stadium capacity in uh, in Canada. I mentioned Murrayfield in in Edinburgh. That has a capacity of sixty seven thousand people. Before you put anybody on the field, yeah. Um, it, Commonwealth Stadium is the biggest in the country, and it's 56,000. Olympic Stadium is 56,000, but you've got to worry about concrete falling on you. Uh, Rogers Center is just over 40,000. Those are big numbers. Those are massive numbers. But if you can sell out 67,000, 75,000, where are you going to go? Yeah, absolutely. And then that it always, doesn't it always just come down to money? She can play at, Temple Stadium in Arizona and get 75,000 people there. Um, So, you know, when you're, again, when you're that big, and she is probably the biggest artist that I can remember that had this kind of a demand was probably Michael Jackson in terms of a solo artist. And maybe before then, 
it might have been the Beatles. I mean, she's got 11 albums right now on the Billboard 200 album chart. Hold on, pause there. You you just brushed over that amazing statistic. Yeah. Just quickly, repeat that slowly. How many albums on the Billboard 200 at once? She's got 11 of her 12 albums right now are on the Billboard 200 album chart. She's got four albums in the top 10. Both those marks and those accomplishments, she becomes the first woman ever in music history to accomplish this. She now has 11 number one albums. She now has 12 number one albums on the Billboard 200 album chart. The most and by any woman. She just broke the record by Barbara Streisand. She is now third all time behind Drake and the Beatles. Um, she simply is the biggest artist in the world. There, there's nobody that even a smidgen comes close to it. She had 22 songs on the Billboard Hot 100 last week. She's got 22%. One in every four. Here's another statistic that'll blow your mind. One in every four albums that were sold this month in July in North America and the UK is a Taylor Swift album. Wow. One in four. That's why she dubbed her tour, the Eras tour. All of her albums are reselling again. Yeah, and I want to ask you about that tour because she's not the only one doing it. You said Ed Sheeran as well, these these mammoth long tours. But, I mean, just those numbers you're describing put her in a class on her own. But if you're talking album sales, is it because people aren't buying albums? In many ways, we've gone back to the era of my my parents' childhood. They didn't buy albums. They bought singles. And maybe people aren't physically buying a 45 and then that little plastic thing you put in the middle to to make it work they're not buying that but they're listening to singles on their streaming service is that why she's so big and by herself or is it just yeah. in all fronts she's just massive yeah, there, i mean she's really one of the best when it comes to engaging her fans i mean all of her fans dub swifties actually truly believe that taylor swift is her friend and his friend. And she just has this this psychological hold on her fan through nothing bad. There's no she's not gonna turn in them into a cult, <laughs> but she was just able to tap into social media better, I think, than anybody else does. About five, four or five years ago, Billboard changed the algorithm of their charts so that the different formats of each of the albums count separately as a sale meaning that if you were taylor swift and you put out an album and four different retailers have four different copies with four different track listings say that there's a bonus track one for target one for walmart one for whatever independent record stores and one for only her website and a fan buys all four usually it would only count as one album sale because it's the same album. Billboard divided all that up. So now it counts as four. Now you see Taylor Swift and BTS and Ed Sheeran and Drake and all of these superstar artists make anywhere between 15 and 30 different versions of the album. Taylor Swift's brand new record, Speak Now, Taylor's version, has seven to ten different colored copies of the vinyl and her fans you better believe are buying each one of them up to show what a big fan they are <laughs> to talk about it online so, so each they've, one got, of those they've got they've got different track listings but it also got different it might be a yeah. green vinyl let's say it might be a green vinyl it might be um 
Taylor, uh, I can't remember if it was Taylor Swift. I think Taylor Swift's Midnight album, the one that she released last time, there were four different back covers of photos. And if you bought all four of them and put them side by side with one another, they actually turned into a giant poster-like um, photo. And fans were showing each other on social media who was the biggest fan uh, in some cases you have to buy a certain album copy through their website in order to get an advanced code for their tour sometimes you have to be a member of the fan club and with that fan club you get a copy of the vinyl record that you could only get when you're a fan club member so there's so many different configurations now and they all count towards that billboard chart even though that billboard might have lost its luster in the last couple of, of years certainly um but this is what it means to be a fan. You want access. You want to have everything. You want to collect everything. The Beatles were no different. You know, the Beatles might have only made two and a half cents off of each single when they were first striking a big in 1964, 65. But the amount of money that they made on Beatles wigs and hats and shirts and dolls and all the, cans rest of the merchandise. Of, cans of Beetle Breath. Pardon you me? could buy cans of Beetle Breath. Their yeah, their breath in right. a can is what you were promised. <laughs> I know, I know. You know what? That demand for your and my breath was, I think, stunted yeah. by the fact that they could also buy Paul McCartney's breath. Um, <laughs> but yes, but you know this. This all just comes down to the whole, um, you know, d- division of of where but, where money is coming from. It's no wonder that Rihanna is a billionaire, Taylor Swift is a billionaire, Drake is probably a billionaire, The Weeknd is a billionaire. You would never have these people making this kind of money, even when adjusted for inflation, simply because there's just more demand for people to spend money on their favorite artists. Music is has never been listened to as much by so many at the same time ever in history. That's what music streaming has done, and that's led people down the path to buy concert tickets, buy the book, buy the autobiography, buy the shirt, buy the hat, buy the vinyl record, buy the cassette, buy the CD version of it. It's just a multitude of ways now that artists can make money. Well, I'm not quite the super music geek that you are, but I'm a pretty, you know, with pretty big music fan. And when I was younger, even more so. And so back then the artists didn't get the money, but you and I might have gone into independent record stores and looked around for a while and then quietly asked, do you have any live cassettes? And the guy would, you know, look to make sure you weren't a cop and pull out a box of, you know, bootleg live uh, recordings of concerts. And you had to know who to ask and how to get them. Now the artist sells them themselves and they make the money. Yeah. And so good on them. Paul McCartney had a great line. It was like every said every time that I tell a journalist that I don't mind Paul McCartney bootlegs, my lawyer calls me up and says, yes, you do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Grateful Dead, they didn't make a lot of money, but they made a living um, promoting bootlegs. Uh, But there's a, you know, I'm sure it's not the only one, but there's a famous concert venue I know of in Glasgow called the Barrowlands. And an artist will play there on Friday night and Saturday morning. You can buy the concert downstairs yeah. in the market um uh, outside so it's um yeah artists tried to do that there were a number of them um pre-covid um pearl jam was one of them certainly um where within anywhere between a couple of hours and a couple of months that show would be available for sale on their website or or in records or pearl jam once had something like 110 albums live albums available on their tour in the late 1990s early 2000 um but you know it kind of it kind of 
petered out a little bit or a lot um, because fans realized that they didn't really want the whole concert. What they wanted was 30 seconds of their favorite song on their phone for free. (laughs) And, And you're someone who this is the space you work in. And I meant to say this earlier, but if you don't follow Eric Alpert on social media, you should, because most of the time you're just putting fun out there into the world, Eric, but you also do put out, um, you do put out tips for artists. And, and one of them is about using social media to grab people and, and create that connection, create that relationship. Yeah. It's something that I, I preached even before I started working in this industry full time back in the late 1990s was that when I was a kid and I got billboard magazine as a subscription for my bar mitzvah, that's what I wanted. And I read the stories of the managers and the record labels and the booking agents and the artists. And it seemed that my fascination, even back then, wasn't necessarily always about the music that I was listening to within the grooves of that album. It was the stories that connected me to the artist, what was happening behind the scenes, who I loved, what they were going through, who produced this, who engineered this. And I, and I, it was, it was like my, my Star Wars. It was my science fiction trying to figure out how to get into that world that I loved the stories. And it still kept with me to this day that nobody really cares about this artist's song. Nobody cares about you as an independent artist. But the connection that they can make to their fan base, anybody can like your social media post, but to get them to follow you, you have to believe in what the artist is doing. And you have to believe who they are as people, who well, what they do in their spare time. And unfortunately, that's just the way that it is, especially when you and I and a lot of our listeners grew up not having a clue what Duran Duran did, except when we read about them in, in Smash Hits or Enemy or Melody Maker. Mm-hmm. But the dream of thinking about what Led Zeppelin did during their off time, who they were hanging out with, you know, um, what, what it was like being a Duran Duran in, a, 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 you know, a musician, um, was left up to our imagination. Now that's not the case. So you got to kind of spread and reveal as much as you possibly can for people to buy into what you're selling, just like any other market. You're going to continue to, to go to concerts this summer. I, I know that you love staying home. I do. What, what I, are your concert this plans? Is, this is a really busy summer for me. I'm seeing, um, wait for it. I'm seeing Donnie Osmond this Saturday <laughs> at Niagara. I, I did bet, an interview with him for my radio show and he might've be been, he might have been the best guest I've ever had on my radio show. He was amazing. Um, talked a lot about what it's like when you are really the biggest musician on the planet, going from that to absolutely nothing within a short period of six years and what that's like. So I'm seeing him. I'm seeing Peter Gabriel, Pink, the Chicks, Springsteen later on this year. So yeah, I'm out there and I'm paying for it all. So I get it. I get it. I absolutely understand trying to fight against the boss. But yeah, this summer it seems to be like I missed it. I missed the fee I missed the 15 seconds of excitement that happens when the lights go down and before the artist gets on stage. That's still the high I'm still chasing after all these years back in 1981. Got to ask you this, just because we we are both of a certain similar vintage. Uh, when you go to see the oldies 
acts like acts that weren't oldies when we were young and yeah. it hurts to think of them now oldies like mick jagger at 35 years old <laughs> no yeah. well n- now like I, I went to go see the cure recently and yeah they pay they played none of their hit well one hit up yeah. until the very end and then they put five hits and a second encore and other than that it was all their new music and i was like you know you're on an oldies tour now robert like robert smith is about to turn 65 and start drawing his british national pension uh yeah. <laughs> people want to hear your hits what do, yeah. do you think artists owe it to play their hits when they're on tours like that yeah you know i i do as a music fan but i gotta tell you i've talked to enough of these artists and worked with enough of them to know that it's really hard for them to get up in the morning knowing that they're going to be doing the exact same show as they did 35 years ago. Mentally, it's a challenge. I don't care how much money you get paid. These people are human and you want to make it exciting yourself. Going out on tour may seem fun. You get to stay in luxurious hotels. You get to travel by bus or by plane, eat food, um, and then go walk out and have 30,000 people adore you for doing whatever you do. But as you get older, though, and your bank account goes a little bit higher, you have, um, you're away from your family, you're away from your kids, you like being home, um, and it's a grind. Robert Smith at 65 can't do the thing that he used to do at 30 or 20. And that's the case for a lot of artists who kind of put their bodies through the ringer in the non-health conscious 70s and 80s. So I get it. I think that if you're spending, you know, $450 on a ticket, you want to hear the songs that made them popular. Uh, and I think it's it's always a balance for every artist before they go out on tour to devise a set list of yeah. uh, I, what's going to please everybody. And some artists get the balance and some don't. I didn't feel like The Cure did. And, you know, as far as physically demanding, I just recently saw over the last year, I've seen both Rod Stewart and Billy Joel. They're both up there. Both of them still fantastic performers, but you can tell... They're not where they were 10 years ago. Oh, dude, I saw, I have spent the most money I've ever spent on a concert ticket uh, seeing um, Genesis on their final tour. Uh, I've seen them about 20, 25 times. Um, Their final tour had Phil Collins sitting on a chair, not moving around and not playing drums. I spent $3,500 for a pair of tickets I saved and I, I didn't regret it one second. But there were times when I felt bad for them, not because this was their final tour, but mostly because age catches us all eventually. And some make it to 70 in better shape than others. And it was sad in a way. But then again, whenever I felt down on myself for thinking that at the show, I just looked around and saw people literally crying that they got to see this band before they retired. So to each their own. I, I would have loved to have seen Phil Collins and Genesis at that point. So uh, Eric, I could talk about music with you all day, but we both have to get on with jobs. Listeners have to get on with their lives. <laughs> Somebody's got to pay for these concert tickets. <laughs> exactly. We'll talk again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. It was great to talk to you. All right. The Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. Again, remember, please subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music. Listen through your Alexa-enabled devices, everything you can do. And leave us a rating, a review. 
Tell your friends about us. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.